if somebody asked me what the structure of my brain is like, I would say it's a Russian nesting doll of Google Drive folders. ACN Efforts at CNF Pod, that creative nonfiction podcast, a show where I speak to, on average, badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Meara. Great. Uh, look who it is. It's, uh, it's, last ch- it's Wudanyan. Oh, nice. It's nice. Uh, freelancer to the stars. If you're still on Twitter, she's at Wudanyan. If you're still on Instagram, she's at Wudanyan. If you're still on the internet, you can learn more about her and her work at Wudanyan.com. What a world we live in. Wudan is a wicked good fact checker and host of the Writer's Co-op podcast. If you need a coach, well, maybe Wudan can help fix your swing. Wudan's latest story, depending on when you listen to this, is for Undark, titled The Vice of Spice, Confronting Lead-Tainted Turmeric. Say that however many times fast. It's a story that's been seven years in the making for Wudan. She traveled to Bangladesh, so you didn't have to. It's a fascinating dive into food contamination, food doctoring, etc., etc. Make sure you're heading over to brendanomare.com hey, for show notes and to sign up for the Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter over at Substack. Just click the lightning bolt on my website or visit rageagainstthealgorithm.substack.com. First of the month, no spam. So far as I can tell, you can't beat it. Actually, you can. If you dig this show, consider sharing it with your networks. So you can help grow the pie and get the CNF and thing into the brains of other CNFers who need the juice. The show's listenership uh, keeps tanking. Uh, I guess my charming personality might have overstayed its welcome in the podcast space. We'll always take nice reviews on Apple Podcasts. So the wayward CNFer might say, hmm, all right, why not? Shout out to Athletic Brewing, the best damn non-alcoholic beer out there. It's not a paid plug. I'm a brand ambassador, and I want to celebrate this amazing product. If you head to athleticbrewing.com and use the promo code BRENDAN020 at checkout, you get a nice little discount on your first order. I don't get any money, and they are not an official sponsor of the podcast. I just get points towards, like, swag, beer, maybe a a hat or a T-shirt, as if I need more hats and more T-shirts. Give it a shot trying not to drink until I turn in a shitty fucking draft of this motherfucking book I'm working on. Got eight and a half months to be sober. I'm miserable. Here's Wudan. Riff. The 3 a.m. voice is something I wrestle with just about every day. That's something that, that's a good... That's a good thing to ask you about. How do you wrestle with your your, your 3 a.m. voice? We all have it to some extent. Well, what does yours sound like? Oh, I'm dead asleep. <laughs> oh, all right, so 3 p.m. voice, maybe. <laughs> well, I stop working at 3 p.m. Usually by that point, I'm trying to like think about what I need to do the next day, which is not fun but necessary just so I'm organized and start work at 8.30 in the morning with a plan. Um, but yeah, 3 p.m. is usually like, okay, either today was a whirlwind day or tomorrow is going to be insane. But yeah, like I don't, and I kind of think in the backdrop, my my brain is just ruminating on whatever tricky like situations I encountered that day and how I want to solve them. I think that is 
these aren't necessarily writing problems, but like, how do I deal with this one client? Or how do I give this feedback? Or how do I want to frame this email in which I have to lay out some hard truths? Or what do I have to assign out to my podcast's producer <laughs> or anything else? It's so funny. I'm not ruminating on things that will earn me money for words, but things that will keep me respectful <laughs> as a worker. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It sounds like it's more what kind of keeps you awake or what keeps the gears turning in that sort of anxiety dri driving kind of way is more, you know, business admin type stuff versus creative stuff. Yeah. For me, it's hard because I'm a really direct person. And if other, the, per the person who is receiving information is also direct, that's, that they don't perceive it as aggressive they perceive it as like kind and helpful but i think i i don't know just experiencing a lot of different communication styles and i think i need to be conscientious of that with fact checking and as someone i i i've tried i've knocked on the door of some fact checkers and haven't heard back from them because i wanted to just talk to them about how they go about that and you, you do some of that work uh, do you do quite a quite a bit of it or is it uh yeah or, oh, yeah or i do a lot it, of it yeah, yeah i'm happy to come back on and talk about fact checking and the craft of it and the business of it and uh, i think it's troubling that it means so many different things at so many different places and um yeah it's not quite standardized but how to how has being a, a a fact checker helped your reporting when i quit grad school to become a journalist and i guess if folks haven't heard me on the show before they can go to the other time that you spoke to me but i quit a career to do journalism which smart dumb in retrospect i don't know uh and because i was coming from a research background as an intern the magazines wanted me to apply my research skills to magazine stories via fact checking and so i trained up at a magazine that i think had really good fact checking guidelines and principles and now when i report a story I am constantly annotating as I write, especially if I know the story is going to go through a fact check process. And I think that's just made me really diligent in tracking where things come from. And I think that's a relevant point to what uh, we're talking about today, which is a story that's taken me about seven years to get out in the world, because over the course of seven years, I um, very slowly amassed information, whether from interviews or research papers that came out. How am I tracking those things, right? I think that's a question that a lot of people might wonder if they're embarking on something even like a book project. So I think because I was trained as a fact checker, I, in the back of my head, I'm always like, this story is going to get fact checked. Also, I want the fact checking process to be seamless as possible, as seamless as possible. So let me just have all that backup there like it just exists i give my fact checkers a huge nested google drive folder at the start and if somebody asked me what the structure of my brain is like i would say it's a russian nesting doll of google drive folders all right so this so this story on uh you know food fraud and turmeric and lead additives and so forth it came to you like seven years ago so maybe take us to that moment of uh what turned you on to this idea so in 2016, I was going into my second year of freelancing, and I had just finished an internship at Nature Medicine. My editor there just completed 
um, UC Berkeley's Food and Farming Fellowship, which is run out of UC Berkeley School of Journalism. And it was headed by Malia Wallen and Michael Pollan. And my incentives for applying, for wanting to apply for this program felt like pretty simple. One, my editor had a great experience and she really recommended it. Also, I feel like at that point of my career, I had so much to learn. I felt like I had so much to, to learn and I definitely had a lot to learn. And I thought it would be really cool to learn from who else but Michael Pollan. And in my head, I'm like, all I have to do now is find an idea that they're going to take. Also knowing that like fellowships and grants are competitive to get. Um, and so I kind of just like read widely about food issues. And uh, there are some industry web pages that I kept looking at uh, for inspiration. And I kind of just got really interested by this idea of fake food. And the story I started with that I pitched to Berkeley had to do with an individual who um, uses a very unconventional approach to trying to solve food fraud. I don't actually want to say anything explicitly because this is an idea that I hope I still can develop and I don't want all your uh, listener base to go and scoop me. Um, so I pitched a very different story then as like, here's an individual who is trying to use an interesting kind of controversial solution to solving this very big problem. I think the stats are like 30% of what we find in grocery stores that's marketed as something is not what it is. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And that's horrifying and looking at food fraud and my story is about spice fraud, but kind of going into this rabbit hole really taught me a lot about my own habits as a consumer and, you know, what are authentic food choices I can make as a result. So I pitched that story, UC Berkeley accepted it. They brought us there for a week, all the fellows there for a week to workshop our stories. I don't think they expected us to place it immediately um, but we talked about how to best pitch our stories, where to pitch our stories, how to think about the narrative arc of the story and how to report it out as a result, like eat delicious food and, you know, um, everything else that comes with that territory. So it was really instructive, but that's how it began. Yeah. And as you realized that you had some meat on the bone, like uh, to what extent or how much should I say, how much re research and reporting went into you just uh, uh, formulating your, your pitch? Not that much, actually. Like, I think the easiest pitches to write then, uh, true then and also true now for me, are ones where the character becomes very evident because then to me, that's one like introductory phone call uh, where I try to parse out the important elements of a story. I'll spend another or two on kind of putting that person in context. And then, like, I have a pitch. <laughs> uh, mm. It's not that much work for me. Yeah, it's a. Uh... Yeah, for some some people put in a lot of legwork uh, for for a pitch. Does it vary from story to story for you? Do you or do you try to really limit the amount of front loading work you do just out of sheer time? Well, pitching a story just means that what you produce just has to sell the story. It does not mean you have to report out the whole thing. So, how am I going to get enough information to write into something salacious that an editor would be excited to commission? That's the goal of the pitch. I'm not out to report the whole story, even though I would love to, but that does not make business sense for me. <laughs> 
with my one pitch I had, it was I, I hadn't done enough. Like uh, there was something of a cliffhangery vibe to to my pitch, and it was just like kind of like the idea overall, but we kind of need to know the ending somewhat before we like would commission you to do this. And I uh, yeah, naturally it died. Um, so it's like it's a uh, yeah. If there is an element of uh, of mystery that can't be delivered, it's like there has to be at least a, a hope that you can stick the landing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, some, depending on what you're pitching, some editors will want to know how the story ends. And also like, if you don't have enough information in a pitch and some publisher is interested, that editor will likely ask, and then you can just spend a very, hopefully smaller amount of time answering that question rather than trying to answer all the questions. And when you're, getting into the meat of your reporting, to what extent do you do a lot of prep before interviewing a, a, a key figure versus letting it be more sort of a free-flowing conversation that leaves you a little more open to discovery? One of the kind of strange things I do as a writer is, especially for longer stories like this, is envision if somebody else who is a much better writer than me has a written has already written the whole thing and which means you know based on who I'm interviewing whether it's an expert source or a supporting actor or actress um, I kind of have a vision of exactly how they might show up and I know that's limiting and um, that helps me you know sometimes it's a quote sometimes they're a supporting um, character in a scene for instance and like I want to flesh out that scene so you know, I, I know enough about the person as to know where they would fit in in the story. And I think over time, that's led me to become a lot more efficient in my reporting process, too, because I'm not trying to, like, expect one person to hold the entire story. Yeah, having some guide rails to your interviewing, like you were saying earlier, it, it does make the reporting more efficient, especially if maybe you only get like an hour with a person. It's like you got to be real tight with that, that series of questioning. Definitely. Um, and it helps me with my previous over-reporting problem. <laughs> this is probably a hot take, but I think narrative nonfiction journalists love to valorize over-reporting. And when you work for yourself, time is money. <laughs> and I realized mm -hmm. I was losing a lot of money by over-reporting. So I stopped. And especially, like I said, over the years, my process in reporting long form has gotten more efficient. And I think, yeah, there's no reason to over-report. If I'm out in the field and I'm just trying to talk to as many people as possible, if people keep saying the same things, telling me things that are new, and I keep trying to ask questions that elicit something new, but I'm just not getting anything, it's time to move on. And there's nothing wrong with that. And another thing I do at the start of a story is outline it. I have, if I have a 4,000 word feature commission, I'll break it into roughly five sections of 800 words each. And the general structure of any feature story is scene, exposition, scene, exposition, ends on the scene. And like just ballparking the idea of each section warranting 800 words, I would kind of, again, go back to my mental sketch of what somebody else who's a better writer than me would have all of those sections be and what key questions need to get answered. And then I think about who is the person who can help me answer this key question. And that's when I start outreach to sources who can help or look at my reporting notes to see what, how what I have can already fit in. I know this process seems really, hmm, what's the word I would like to use? 
anal, <laughs> but and maybe it sounds really rigid, but I think through as long as I have a starting point, I'm really flexible to the shape of the story changing. Uh, I am flexible to some sections being longer. I am flexible to some of the information not bearing out in the ways that I initially thought, but at least it gives me a starting point to start asking the questions that I proposed in my pitch or that my editor also wanted answered or anything else. You've referred to this 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 uh, this writer that you envision that's better better than you to kind of get you into that headspace, if you mm. will, as you're. What is the shape, or who is that writer that you envision as better than you that you kind of. Uh, that you embody, <laughs> that I you try to embody. It's not a single person. And early in my career and talking to mentors who write long form, their advice to me was to read a lot of what I wanted to produce. And I didn't really understand that advice, but now I do. Because reading other people's work and studying it and dissecting it is kind of like going to journalism school for free. And along with fact checking too, for me, I'd say. And so seeing the structure of stories and how they flow and the user experience as a reader informs my approach as a writer. Um, so I spent a lot of time reading features from the New Yorker and Harper's and New York Times Magazine, California Sunday, rest in peace, um, and so many others. And all of them have that scene exposition, scene exposition format more or less, unless you're John McPhee, then you can like go in circles and roller coasters. Um, but yeah, just <laughs> seeing that basic form has really helped me a lot and just coming up with something simple to start. And again, like being open to the fact that that shape could change. For, you know, for this particular story, uh, you know, everyone tends to have some degree of repertorial hurdles. And I wonder for you, like what, what might you have run into here as a, just a, as a hurdle to your reporting and your research for it? I was trying to understand why people were cheating and committing crimes, although that is not how the people who were committing the crimes thought of it, because they were doing it for economic reasons to support their families and their business and so on and so forth. And they felt like in order to survive in an economic market, that is what they had to, had to do. And that is uh, economically motivated adulteration or food fraud in a nutshell. And so a part of me was worried that they wouldn't want to speak, but people were surprisingly open. And I think it's because time had passed since um, there was a major enforcement effort in Bangladesh after researchers had discovered where in the supply chain that people were adding lead chromate, which is um, both carcinogenic and bad because lead. Um, <laughs> and hmm. then they also worked with the government to implement a series of interventions to basically stop that adulteration in its tracks. And that work, the big part of that legwork happened in late 2019 and early 2020. And I went this year in 2023. So I think, you know, the the surveillance, the constant surveillance and possible punishment uh, had passed. And I think people were willing to talk as a result of that, too. So explain a little bit about what lead chromate is, what it does and how it was you know, used, uh, you know, in this, you know, through throughout uh, your piece here. Yes. So lead chromate is an industrial painting agent. It's what makes school buses yellow, <laughs> and it is made of lead and chromate. And chromate is CRO4, 
Um, so a chromium ion with four oxygen atoms attached. And there's something about, uh, chemists call this the oxidation state. Sorry, this is so nerdy. Um, the oxidation state ah, of chromium. I like, a good, I like good chemistry. It's perfect. Good. Love it. Uh, it's plus six. And so chemists call that hexavalent chromium because it's six. And that specific type of chromium is carcinogenic. Uh, it can also cause respiratory issues, um, increased exposure to lead. I feel like in the U.S., we... California especially has a lot of regulations around lead. So um, continual exposure to lead uh, causes neurodevelopmental issues in children, and it can cause kidney, kidney and heart problems um, in adults, although ad adults absorb way less lead than children. And so the story uh, is about why lead chromate was specifically added to turmeric, which feels really ironic because in the last day, um, even five to 10 years, turmeric has been in the zeitgeist as being like a health booster, right? And so like, why would somebody add something that is detrimental to health and something that is otherwise like healthy? Um, and the answer is in coloring. So turmeric powder, I think consumers expect it to be that vibrant golden glow. And uh, as many crops go, I don't know if you garden, Brendan, but sometimes there's a good crop year and other times there's a bad crop year. And uh, on bad crop years for turmeric, the root can rot. And when you grind that up, um, when, sorry, when you polish the root, if it's you know a, a bad year and then you grind it up, that color is gonna be a lot darker and it's just not as attractive for consumers to buy. Not just consumers like you and me, but like, traders even along the lengthy turmeric supply chain. They just don't really want anything to do with it. But some people who still want to sell their turmeric in a bad year because that is their only way of making money um, will add a painting agent, lead chromate, to enhance its color. So that is the role of an incredibly toxic chemical uh, and an otherwise like unsuspecting spice. It's just bonkers to me that, uh, you know, the extent to which, you know, some of the some, uh, you know, not just turmeric, but you look at other foods, too, that are, you know, doctored in such a way to make it more uh, attractive and you know, how insidious that is, because, uh, you know, how, how all the chefs say we eat with our eyes first. I guess we shop with our eyes in a lot of ways, too. And that can be uh, deadly in a sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would think that lead chromate feels a lot more deadly, but some things are like really hidden. So for a while, I was trying to draw a story out of the adulteration of cumin powder because there was a lawsuit that got settled in Texas about a woman who went into anaphylactic shock because she has a peanut allergy and she bought a chili mix, I believe with cumin as a component, but the cumin component was adulterated because the company who manufactured the cumin basically used like ground peanuts as additional filler to like make up the additional volume before mm. selling it to the packer. Fun times. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like it's, uh, yeah, these things that these, these corner cutting cost cutting, uh, things are for, you know, be it for, I mean, we, we, I guess you kind of see it a lot of times in like dog food and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. when you, you don't really expect that degree of filler with, you know, with human food, especially with the allergies being what they are, like it's a, it can, it's literally life and death with some of these things. 
Yeah. I mean, a lot of instances of food fraud feel a little more harmless. Like a few years ago, there was kind of this scandal around the fact that there were uh, wood chips and grated Parmesan. And that's Mm. also hilarious because what people meant by wood chips was that it was actually cellulose, uh, which is a, a plant, a component of plants. And people add cellulose into like crafts, Parmesan and other, you know, packaged, refrigerated, grated cheeses to help it not be clumpy when it flows out. And guess what? That too is a consumer preference. So one fascinating thing about following food fraud for the last seven years is appreciating that a lot of why people cheat along the way is because consumers expect their food to be a certain way. Uh, If you can connect the dots farther Mm -hmm. back, like why, you know, why have consumers thought to that 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 turmeric needs to be like that super golden uh yellow or you know various other products have to perform a certain way and then that puts that that uh that production pressure to make it to make it so yeah so in south asian culture turmeric is widely used almost daily in curries and it's also a ceremonial spice and it's also really big in ayurvedic medicine and I think culturally, the more golden the spice, the more valuable, the more medicinal. Fast forward a few hundred years, I guess, to capitalism and things like Goop, which is founded by Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, She can post a very tantalizing photo of turmeric latte, um, the golden and milky swirl, and then that kind of takes off. So like... Some of it is cult. I mean, most of it is cultural, and some of it runs a lot deeper than just like what's on social media. As you sat down to write this piece, and after you've done a lot of a lot of research and reporting uh, for Feature of Nature, and you've been doing it for years, uh, at what point do you know like you feel like you're ready to sit down and write the thing? Writing was the easiest. <laughs> writing was the easiest part of this whole process. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because I had known what I wanted to say for so long, and I finally had all the information that by the time I got back from Bangladesh, the words were about to spill out of me (laughs) if I didn't start Mm. typing immediately. It's a very rare feeling, I would say. I don't know how many times you've ever felt that, um, because most of the time- rare. Yeah, extremely (laughs) rare. Because to me, you know, normally writing is a job, and I- uh, receive money in exchange for words and I will do it because you know everyone clocks into work and so sometimes it's a matter of writing that 500 word blog post or 1500 word profile for all these clients and uh, that feels like work but when the information is just ready to come out wholesale I just think that's so cool and I 100% took uh, took that momentum and wrote this wrote 4,500 words in three days <laughs> mm-hmm. um, felt like a fever dream, but I was going to say like when yeah, like those, those moments are few and far between. And it's like, when it's happening, I, I, I was going to, uh, you know, I'll ask, it was just like, did you just have to, we're like, you know what, I'm going to surrender to this right now. I'm, I'm going to table a lot of other things and just ride this wave. Cause this does not come along very often. Oh yeah. I, rejiggered my entire work schedule. I was like, I have been dicking around for like the first four months of this year. I should really drum up more work. I should reach out to my regular clients. But then I was like, no, because if I do it now, it's going to take 
less time than if I try and schedule it in even a week later. And so I was really just like, I'm obsessed with efficiency. I don't know if you probably know this about me, but uh, yeah, I, I, people don't think about long form journalism as an efficient process. And in some ways, you know, doing this story and it taking seven years to get out is not, but where I can make things efficient, I will want to do so. Yeah. In, in what ways do you streamline things and, and try to make what is on its surface an inefficient process far more efficient, at least for, you know, for your taste? Yes. So I think we've talked about a little bit of that already, which is keeping good track of notes, knowing what what's important, what stands out from an interview, like soon after that interview was completed. This is what I need. Everyone works really differently. Even in the field, I process all my notes and recordings from that day, that evening. There is no like post field reporting, like examination of what was done once I'm home. All of that happens in the field. I have the Ira Glass method of journaling about the day as the day is wrapping up and reflecting on the most poignant parts because those also appear in my story and my draft. And so, yeah, I find small points of efficiency and I will definitely latch onto them. Aside from this story, one other thing that might feel pedantic too uh, is just tracking like all the sources I need and making sure that I am getting them, whether they are of like a specific, you know, a specific voice and expert type that I need or a specific type of like story character that I require and kind of just like treating it as a checklist um, and just looking at it every single week or every two weeks, depending on where I am in the story production process and making sure that I'm on track to getting the interviews that I need. What balance or ratio uh, of the work you do is this kind of feature work versus uh, other freelance writing projects? If you asked me this five years ago, the balance would have been incredibly different. Spending time overseas in South and Southeast Asia was a big part of my business and I really loved it. And then the pandemic changed everything. Um, Early in 2020, I was supposed to go to Bangladesh and of course, that did not happen because maybe by now you've all heard that there was a pandemic. And <laughs> so I pivoted into covering COVID and I was doing so much COVID reporting and I was writing and reporting like three articles at a given time and it really burned me out. And in that first pandemic year, I also dealt with mental health issues and that also made me look really closely. I'm, I was burnt out, like extremely burnt out. And that burnout yeah. led me to take a closer look at my relationship and identity to my work. And I kind of realized that like, I love working on narrative journalism. I can produce narrative podcasts. I can be a fact checker on somebody's work of narrative nonfiction that is in book format, but I don't always have to be the person producing the work. And so at this point, I'm probably producing like one at most two pieces of narrative journalism a year that are in like the 4,000 plus word range. And when you're, you know, reporting and you're out there and I'm, you know, looking at, you know, the final uh, scene of your piece and you have just, you know, some really, really, really good quotes from your central figures or one of your main characters Mm -hmm. who kind of, kind of, kind of sums that up. He kind of has a reckoning with uh, what he's had to do to just make ends meet. And uh, when you come across a, a quote 
of like, let's say where he says like, it hurt me sometimes to do that. I have to answer to a law that I used it in food, you know, it being the lead chromate. Mm-hmm. Um, when that stumbles across your recorder or your notebook, at, at what point do you realize like, oh, that, that that's a really good quote to go at the end? Mm. My editor put that quote at the end, but I knew mm-hmm. in the moment that was a good quote. Uh, so my process in the field when I'm working with a translator is I'm always taking notes because I do not want to listen to t- that tape again. Usually, I think that interview with that central character was over two hours. And when there's translation involved, the the moments of actual useful English are so few and far between, which makes it like such a process and such like a big mental task for me to go back and listen to it again. So I try and spare myself that by getting quotes in the moment. And I will look at my recorder, put like write the timestamp, write out the quote, and then deal with it later. And I, I like I will know what it's I will know it's a quote that I'm going to use. Um, at the end of the day, I take all my handwritten notes in my notebook, and I type them up into a Google Doc because it's easier to search for keywords um, when I'm not trying to make sense of my bad handwriting. Also good for the fact checker, by the way. Um, and so yeah, like. I recognize good quotes in the moment because I am not digging. I am not listening back to tape to find them. <laughs> What's sometimes nice when I do the Yadavist interviews, uh, I get, I tend to get drafts that have some comments uh, from either Jonah or Sayward in the margins. And what's nice about the draft you sent me, uh, there's comments from the editor uh, alongside, which is always kind of nice to get a little sort of peek behind the curtain of what's uh, and that. So it's always nice to look at that. And I wonder if just, uh, you know, for you, what was it like being edited on on this piece? And as a follow up to that, you know, how do you prefer to be edited? Mm, The relationship, oh God, what's my voice doing? The relationship between a writer and an editor is deeply collaborative and it's something I have had to learn over time. I think early on in my career, I kind of was like, me, me, me. I want the story to turn out the way I want it to because it's my name on it. And somewhere in between, I probably think like when I started doing more client work, actually, so like writing for biotech companies or nonprofits or research institutes, I started realizing that the writing is not for me necessarily. It is for an audience. And sometimes that audience is something I have no control over or no interest in, but I am creating a written product for somebody else. And I think that feels instructive in my approach in journalism, even if a project took me seven years. And so I really loved working with my editor on the story. They were really supportive. They helped ask good questions. They tinkered around on structure with me in a way that I did not immediately see. And now I think that's like a cool structural tool to add to my arsenal. One bit of feedback they got was, you know, when I switch between scene, exposition, scene, that sometimes like the time is not in chronological order and I keep flipping between like present and past. And as a reader, that can be really confusing. And I was like, hmm, like maybe I have read too many things that flip so so much like that that it doesn't bother me as much but I also like the alternative that they proposed which allowed for I think more seamless reading in a way because the reader is not constantly doing the work of being like oh we are like 
10 years past and now we are back to the present. Um, but yeah, I think like just creating work, I'm not creating work for me, I'm creating work for somebody else. And that is a collaborative process. I would say that's also true with a story that came out earlier this year in Popular Mechanics about noise pollution from a crypto mine. And the editor pitched me the topic and basically was like, find a place. And I was like, ooh, I like this kind of assignment because it's really hard for freelancers to read the minds of editors and what kinds of stories they're interested in. And so I did a few, I did a few calls. I did a bit of digging around and I identified a place and then I kind of just sold my editor on the place. And that whole like story topic to ideation to like getting specific about where and why felt very fun to me. And I know for me, uh, something that always gives me chest tightness is just the nature of, (laughs) of, of cold calling and stuff like that. It just, it triggers my uh, anxiety for lack of a better <laughs> word you know so f- for you what are what are some of those things that you maybe you still uh struggle with if, you know if you have any at all I don't really I just sent a pitch to an editor who I've worked with before that was like your colleague told me to reach out to you because it sounds like you it's something you'd be interested in here's everything I've been talking about with her Sorry that this is a like throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. But I think I'm just like learning that more editors, especially editors who I've had a relationship with, are probably a lot more amenable to that kind of pitching process. But I think one thing I teach to in my coaching practice is like to get people away from this idea that a pitch has to be perfect. Actually, one of the most triggering things to me as a like somebody who helps freelancers is pitching events that are like pitch perfect. And I'm like, no, we don't need to be perfect. The pitch just has to be good enough to sell something. And that can be a 500 word, you know, three and a half paragraph memo pitch, or it can be like two sentences that's really captivating. But in those two sentences, the writer is doing a lot of work in defining what the story is and saying why it should be told like right now and why they're the person to do it. Like, So I don't think there is a perfect version of a pitch. I haven't thought about pitching in that way for a very long time. I know, you know, thinking about the atavist who I have pitched unsuccessfully, there are some publishers who like a more conventional magazine pitch. And there are others who are just like, oh, wow, like I really enjoy working with this writer or I want to work with this writer. Let's co-develop an idea together. So mm, I think it requires experimentation, but I, my anxieties these days are not about pitching. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My anxiety, it's just like, thankfully I have a, I have a North Carolina phone number. So when I call people, they tend to let me go write the voicemail. And so I tend, <laughs> so I can, I can usually leave my, my pitch or of who I am, why I'm calling them on the voicemail. And I've got it down to like 45 seconds or so. And it, it, Usually they'll listen. They'll they'll call me back at that point. But it's when I have to do that, my little spiel, like in the moment, can get weird. They're like, "Well, who the hell are you? How do you even find me?" Uh, this, that, and the other. So oftentimes it, those things just, I, I I just don't like cold calling, and it's uh, but you know, got to do it. So I mm-hmm. just do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's uh, but uh, but yeah, very nice. Well, Wudan, as always, I like to bring these conversations down for a landing by uh, asking the guest for a recommendation of some kind, something fun you're excited about, and uh, I'd I'd extend that to you. What might you recommend for our uh, our faithful listeners out there? 
well, it's summer, so <laughs> I recommend getting outside and getting away from your screen. And I hope you're listening to this while doing something fun. Fantastic. Well, Wudan, this is uh, is great to get to kind of unpack this piece a bit, and uh, something that you've been working on for a long time. So it really uh, uh, exhibits the the patience that you had in the, in the story from beginning to end. So uh, as always, just thanks for coming on and talking some shop. Thanks so much for having me. Well, 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 thanks to Udan. She had this story coming out, and she reached out to me and wanted to talk about it. I don't think this conversation lived up to what she was hoping, but sometimes you have your fastball and sometimes you don't, and my arm is fucking dead these days. Don't forget to sign up for the Rage Against the Algorithm substack, or do forget uh, to get more of these sunny dispatches from the likes of me. The newsletter and podcast subscribers is really all I care about. Why? It's elective and permission-based, so F social media. If you want to really level up your support, you could always go to patreon.com slash cnfbot. I finished a series of coaching calls where I spoke with members about what they were working on and sending them transcripts and recordings of our chats. Pretty good value. Sometimes you just need to talk things out with a somewhat detached and semi-experienced voice of sorts. What a deal. I mean, for like four bucks a month, you can get a lot of, a lot of my time. Uh, I think Wudan charges like $300 for 50 minutes. You can get me for four bucks. Pretty great, huh? I wrote a 657-word screed, screed of how sour my headspace is, can you tell, with the idea of reading it right here. But I realized what a disservice that would be to you. Like, I realize part of the appeal of me as a host is that I'm pretty forthright with how shitty I feel on the reg you know, about being a writer and the host of an obscure podcast. But there are parting shots you write and read and, you know, you're helping people. And then there are ones that will no doubt cause even more people to unsubscribe from your sinking ship. Ah, fuck it. Here's the unpumped septic tank that is my head right now. So I, I, I took Instagram off my phone and only used the podcast account through the desktop computer at this point. It's limited. You can't post the stories, really. Well, you can, but it's really very limited. Um, but, but who the fuck cares? None of this shit matters. We're all giving our time away for free. I, I'm telling you, I'm in a real, real bad mood. It just came on really quick. Like, I wasn't in a bad mood when I woke up. Most days I am, but... Today I was like, okay, things are okay. I, I'm almost at genius level on spelling B. Uh, got Wordle in six. That, that happened. But I'm just in a bad mood. That's really shitty of me to dump a bad mood on you in the parting shot of a podcast. You know, I, I just want to, I'm, I'm at, a, at a place where I just want to burn it all down. I don't see the point to anything. You know, who are these people who wake up in the morning and they're like happy? You know, when 5.30 or 6 a.m. rolls around, I'm like, Fuck. Like here, it's happening. Here we go again. And listen, I realize this is an insult to people we've lost, people who were taken before their time, people who like lived and relished and just every day is a gift. I, you know, I, 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 I realize it's an insult to people, um, to, the, to those people. Or, or to people who wish they could just have one more day on this pale blue dot. You know, I'm just fed up with everything. I can't exactly put my finger on it. Maybe it's because, you know, book stuff just it doesn't feel like it's going particularly well. Maybe it's because for 10 weeks we've largely been on house arrest managing these three dogs. I only go out in public to go food shopping. 
And then, like, what an asshole. You have a roof over your head. And food and health insurance. Like, uh, the fucking gall to even complain. It's a big reason I've pulled about as far back from social media as I possibly can without deleting everything. Because I, I find people's cries for attention so transparent and nauseating that it just makes me angry. You know, lately, everything has brought out the worst in me and the worst of me. Like, you don't deserve this attitude if you're still listening, the four of you that make it this far. You know, like, what what right do I have to be grouchy when I have that coveted book contract with a recognizable publisher? Like, isn't that the dream? You know, one more year would be the fucking dream, but uh, can't do shit about that. Right now, I'm the guy you avoid at the party. Oh, no, wait. Now, I'm the guy you don't even bother inviting because you wouldn't leave your sunroof open during a thunderstorm. Or if you do, you let's hang out. I, I often wish I was this guy, Joe. I think we all have a Joe in our lives. Maybe you're Joe also, and good for you. I've probably talked about him before. He has this nine. He has his nine to five. He loves going on like two to three cruises a year. He likes working on his house. Lives for slow pitch softball season. Like he wears a full uniform. And get this: at last check, and granted, this was a few years ago, the dude like slides into second base. Nobody slides. Joe fucking slides. And the guy, so far as I can tell, is the happiest motherfucker on the planet. You know, my wife also noted he has a hot wife. Or at least a, a wife that's definitively out of his league. Either way, bonus. And, and then and when we're in this conversation, she brought up that she had earned a fellowship for this piece she wrote. And I thought to myself, wow, like how do people even find out about fellowships and shit? Like, I have no idea. Then I thought, well, maybe me applying is worthless and pointless anyway. Like, if I actually won one, I'd be taking a spot from someone who likely deserves it way more. Plus, does the world really need to hear from another cisgendered, straight, white, middle-aged dude? The answer is a hard no. So yeah, I hate myself. That's what all this boils down to. I've hated myself since I was 14 years old. So 29 years of self-flagellation, self-hate, self-defeat, self-loathing... Uh, thanks, Mom. I, I get it from her, and I haven't been able to wrestle that demon to the ground. Yeah, not that my, my not calling my mom the demon, you know, the more uh, figurative demon. For years, I had to almost hide any success I had from her, like on the phone, and or I didn't just play the lovable loser. Otherwise, she would no doubt turn on me. Uh, when my sister elevated her station, my sister was like dead to her. Um, mom would likely turn on me, like think I was somehow better, think I deserved a higher station in life. And the thing is, like when you are uh, pathologically self-deprecating, as I have been my entire life for the most part, to get a laugh, give it enough time and you start to believe it. You know, my dad always said that the world needs ditch diggers. And I was like, who am I to think I'm above ditch digging? He was ashamed when I got a job as a janitor in college. Uh, it, it was nasty most of the time, but, you know, occasionally there'd be, like, free donut holes still in the bakery, and I would uh, put them in, I would chew on them, and I would spit them out. It was sort of like this pre-bulimia, because I just hated it, I hate how I looked, and my, my body, body, bad body image, and I told my friend John, who worked with me, I'm like, hey, I invented a new eating disorder. It's just you you chew on it and get the flavor and then spit it out. And he was like, wow. Anyway, I was thinking of deleting this entire parting shot, but then I was like, you know what? Fuck it. Leaving it in. Okay? 
Stay wild, CNFers. And if you can't do, interview. See ya. Maybe next week. Maybe, maybe next week. Things will be better. <laughs>